I'm just a photographer. I don't consider myself an artist, you know? <laughs> oh boy. So uh, this episode is an absolute doozy. I mean, if I was given money every time I heard that statement, I would definitely have a new shiny lens for my camera. I'm just saying. And I, I get it. I understand the hesitation to call oneself an artist, especially those of us who are working as photographers. And with all the tropes and stereotypes that pervade popular culture, like starving artists, eccentric artists, even the tortured artist. I mean, I'm just saying, if I had to starve, be tortured, and be wildly eccentric, in order to be an artist, yeah, I think I would pass too. Today's episode might not convince you to start calling yourself an artist, but it will give you an alternate perspective to consider that can only expand the work that you are actually creating right now. So hang on, we're gonna get into it. Hi, I'm Christine Richet, an artist and mentor to photographers around the world. Consider me your interstellar guide on the path to being a better nightscape photographer. In this podcast, we will bring together our artistic right brain and technical left brain by exploring creativity, art, and inspiration in photography, as well as diving into technique, gear, and strategy necessary to elevate your craft and photographic practice. I am so happy to be a part of your Milky Way journey. This is the After Dark Photography Podcast. I wasn't even 10 when the real world presented me with the idea that being an artist is not something you should want to aspire to. I clearly remember having a conversation with my neighbor, my dad's friend, who's still a great friend now, and saying that I wanted to be an artist. Yeah, their immediate reaction was laughter, like the really deep belly laughter kind, the kind that said, oh, you're so young and you know nothing of the real world. Now, it wasn't in a mean way, this is still a valued person in my life, just that their life's experience had shown them that art was not something to be valued. And growing up in a rural area where people made their money working hard, often at the expense of their bodies and time, yeah, I get the reaction now. Nova Scotia, where I live, is a small province, and the economy here historically has been resource-driven. As a child, we struggled to make ends meet. I remember talking to my mother on one of the Mondays when she used to come over and look after my son when he was just little, and she was recalling how when my brothers and I were little, there were days when she wouldn't eat at all so that we would have food. And I just, you guys, it was a whole other perspective for me now as a mother. And I completely understand because if it came to it, I would go without 
to make sure my kids didn't have to. And this is the climate and the location and the economic pressures that I grew up in and that a lot of my neighbors grew up in and lived in every day. So I spent most of my junior and senior high thinking that I would go into accounting or maybe environmental law. But something in me spoke up and said, hey, Christine, follow your heart. So in my last year of high school, instead of taking advanced math, I took art. Naturally, of course, those classes overlapped. So doing both of them wasn't an option. Someone would not want to be doing calculus and art, of course. What person like that exists? And when it came time to apply for university, I only applied to one. NASCAD University, the local art university here in Nova Scotia. Any Canadian will know. We have NASCAD, Nova Scotia, OCAD, Ontario, and ACAD. Alberta. There are other art universities as well, but those are the, the more standardized ones across the country. And I would love to tell you that that was it. I just dove in and I embraced being an artist. I did go to art school after all, and I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts instead of doing community college for photography, which is more of a practical-based diploma where you're learning the ins and outs of the job as opposed to learning about art. And when I was in university, I lived and breathed art. I loved art theory. I stayed up all hours of the night in those dark rooms and I created. I spent so much time in the dark rooms that I now have uh, skin allergies from all of the time spent with the chemicals. Yeah. Fun, fun takeaways from university. And on the same token, I also monetized my photography early on. So I was taking commercial jobs when I was still in university. I was working for the Annalia Noens Gallery, documenting artwork. I was volunteering for organizations that I cared about, both to help them and to grow my resume. And straight out of university, I got a job in what I call corporate creative. It was a dream job, to be sure, like legitimately a dream job. It used both of my degrees. So I had a BFA in photography and a BDES in design. And I got to use both of them and get paid for it. Oh my gosh. In Nova Scotia, living in my home, amazing. And it was a job where I learned so much. But I also ran from that identity of artist because hey, we all know this. Being an artist doesn't pay your bills. Being an artist means struggle, means lack. I was a photographer through and through. I created photos, but not art. And this, ah, it's just an idea that is so pervasive in this space. And maybe not for the same reasons that I held on to, but one that I hear from many, many photographers. This idea that if we embrace being an artist, it means we will have to struggle. I think there are a few reasons why. 
And I would really, really love for you to reach out to me and let me know if any of these hit home with you. And then after, I'm going to talk about a couple of these cliches that we talk and we hear about. After that, I want to offer you up an alternative way to think about what we do as photographers and how and why you might want to consider your work art. So the first thing, I've touched on it a little bit already. There are so many negative cliches about what it means to be an artist. It's pervasive in our society. Descriptive words and ideas about artists that you're likely to hear throughout popular culture include, but are not limited to, things like starving, struggling, tortured, eccentric, flaky, lazy, and more. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm not about to raise my hand and identify with any of those. And it goes deeper than that. Art is generally not seen as important as other things in life. Art does not feed us. It doesn't keep us warm or shelter us. So do we really need it? We have been conditioned by modern day society to think that art is only for the elite, that it is a luxury, not something important, not a need. Think about this. How is art treated in most schools? The many, 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 let's not talk about that, many years past when I was in high school, my teachers and advisors were so disappointed in me when I decided to take art instead of doing calculus. I was, quote, throwing my life away and wasting my potential, end quote. And I think a large part of the problem is that to see the value of art, we have to look deeper. We can't just look at that surface level activity. And it's where most people kind of stop at. People who haven't thought of art as being a big part of their life. People who haven't taken the time to experience creating art and experience how it's changed their realities and the realities of people around them. Let's say that you are a bird whose home is high up in a tree by a river. Yes, I do want you to pretend that you're a bird. Stay with me here. Every day, you see two people show up. One of them unloads their truck and starts moving materials around and builds a bridge. Yes, I'm going with a bridge metaphor. Did you listen to the last episode that I did? If you didn't, well, you're not going to understand why it's funny that I'm going with build me metaphor. Anyways, it's easy to see the value of what that person is doing. They are taking pieces putting them together and building a way to get from one side of the river to the other. Now, there's another person who shows up every day. Now, that person spends hours with a camera in their hand, walking around, stopping, putting that camera up to their face, bringing it back down, walking around, repeat. From an outside perspective, the latter person is providing no value whatsoever except maybe like moving, I don't know, some pollen or seeds or stuff around on the pant legs. 
from the perspective of looking at these two people, just at the surface level, the one who's creating art is not providing value. It is not a practical thing. Like how is this person's time and energy actually contributing to society? But when we dig under the surface, that's when things start to get interesting. And that's when we can start to understand the inherent value of art. Art can do so many things for us. So much so that I cannot list all of it here. It's not possible. We would be here for way too long. I don't want to keep you guys forever. Art changes the way that we think. It requires us to problem solve. It's been shown in countless studies that art teaches us critical thinking. There are some times when I think certain people in positions of power could maybe use a little bit more art practice. I'm just saying, they could be coming up with some better solutions. And on that note, art connects people across cultures. It helps people empathize in a way with others that can't be expressed through words. When we look back over history, we see movements of art and how they have mirrored society. In that way, art can be seen as a barometer of society. And it's often considered to be the repository of a society's collective memory. I mean, can you tell me that's not worth anything? Mm. Now for myself, art is really a way to express myself and to communicate ideas with others. Tolstoy says, art is the activity by which a person, having experienced an emotion, intentionally transmits it to others. Okay, I get it. Art's a good thing. But is photography art? And are you, as a photographer, an artist? Okay, okay. I am not just opening up a can of worms here. I know I'm exploding about a million of them, given how hot of a topic this can be. So this is my take on this hot potato. When photography was invented, it was revolutionary. All of a sudden, the entire art world shifted. Illustrators who previously were making a living on their technical ability to recreate real world objects in two dimensions were out of work. Who needs botanical drawings when we can now have photos? There was a collective shift in the art world with the invention of photography. And photographers at the time, photographers working in the 1800s, they wanted their photos to look like paintings and to be treated with the same respect that painting was. The dominant photographic movement of the late 1800s was pictorialism. And pictorialism sought to show that photography was not only a tool for documenting, it was also a form of visual expression equal to any other fine art form. And the practitioners of pictorialism were all united in their desire to elevate photography to a form of fine art. You'll see that their actual images you can go and look up some of the artists um, from the period. 
Julia Margaret Cameron is actually one of my favorite photographers of the time. You can look her up after. I'll link um, in the show notes as well if you want to. Um, all of their actual images used different techniques and looked a little bit differently, but they were united in this idea that, yes, photography is a fine art form. And depending where you look, you are still going to see the same core struggle play out in the modern day art world. Even when I was in art school in the early 2000s, we had long conversations about how photography was not treated the same as the other fine art disciplines. Photography is still in some places looked at as less than other fine art forms. And the why is simply because photography directly derives its subject matter from the real world. And personally myself, I think this is the real crux of the matter. Even for photographers who have never studied any of the history of art over the last couple of centuries, they will still know that photos are a representation of the real world. So how can we really term a photograph as art? And if we get even more specific, this idea is even more pervasive in astrophotography. Since there is a lot, a lot of work that is done scientifically with optical instruments to record data from the universe for us to study and learn about. You know, ever heard of the Hubble telescope? I think you have. And if it's science, it most certainly is not art, right? Yeah, just come down this rabbit hole with me, okay? Just a little bit, okay? So all art is derived from our human experiences. Art is a human construct, after all. It's the manifestation or application of human creativity. So a painting of a waterfall is still derived from that waterfall just as a photo of it is. The trick here is that the photo looks more like what we are used to seeing with our eyes. So much so that we start to believe it is just that, a photo alone, a document, not a representation. This is the part where I start to push back because I disagree. Let me present my case to you. I didn't go to law school, so I'm probably not going to do it nearly as well as a lawyer, but come with me here. Exhibit A is the comparison of our human optical system to the optical system of our cameras. Article one is our human optic system that is comprised of our light eyes collecting light data and our brain making sense of that data. Article two is the camera body and the lens we have chosen to place on it and the limitation of the settings the camera body and the lens combination can achieve. So the first argument here, I've already alluded to. We can choose the lens combination to use on our camera body. We can't, well, at least yet, switch out our eyes to see at different focal lengths, 
We can use some optical devices like binoculars and telescopes to go in front of our eyes, but it will not give you the same result as using different camera lenses. We do not interact with the world in the same way our camera does in terms of how much of the world we see. So our field of view. We control that with our cameras, depending on the lenses we put on. In our everyday life, it is what it is. The second is the way that the camera versus our brain processes information. All right, it takes 13, 13 milliseconds for the human brain to process an image. To give you a little bit of context here, it can take between 100 to 400 milliseconds to blink. And only 13 milliseconds for the brain to process the light data that is coming in through our eyes. Not only is our brain incredibly fast, it also is superior at putting together the information that we see. When we look at any given scene, we're not actually seeing everything. We have our cone of focus. However, our brain is able to quickly see everything in the scene and process it for us to understand our surroundings. When we contrast that with our camera, the camera is controlled by us. It sees only what we tell it to and records the scene in the way we decide. We can do long exposures, collecting the movement of light for one second, 30 seconds, 15 minutes or hours. In fact, the first photograph ever recorded by Nisiphor Nyatsi in the 1800s took eight hours to record. Our eyes and brain are real time only. They don't record that movement of light over time. It's, the, it's not how we interact with the world. It's not how our optical system works. And on the other end of the spectrum, we also can't see as fast as our cameras can. The camera can capture something going one four thousandth, one eight thousandth of a second. Yeah, we can't see like that. And there's a story I love to tell around this because we often take a lot of stuff for granted now, just collective knowledge that we have that we didn't have in the past. For instance, if I asked you, hey, when a horse runs, do they lift all four of their hooves up off the ground? And you would say, yes, yeah, we all know that. Same thing, sometimes my dog's going really fast, she will too. Uh, you watch some greyhounds at a track. But here's the thing, not, wasn't common knowledge in the 1800s. So much so, the photographer at the time, Edward Moybridge, was commissioned by the governor of California to help him settle a bet that when horses ran, all four of their hooves came up off the ground. Previous to this, this the thing, I guess, in horse racing circles, can't say I've ever been in those circles, specifically not in the late 1800s. Uh, this is something people had theorized about. And there's people on both sides of the camp, like, no, they can't do that. They always have one foot on the ground. And then, like the governor of California, there were those who thought, yeah, no, they totally do. So he commissioned Edward Moybridge to prove it. And Moybridge set up 
what turned into um, something he's very famous for, his movement studies. But he set up these motion-triggered cameras, multiple cameras in a row that were motion-triggered and took quick exposures. And from those motion-triggered images, we see the horse running and all of his hooves coming up off the ground. And that was just like mind-blowing at the time. And Moybridge went on to do movement studies across all kinds of different things. A lot of people movement, but also animals as well. And taking these very complex images, you're not, it's not like what we do now where you just hold down the shutter and you just follow something and click and take a million shots in, in one go. No, these were motion triggered, multiple cameras lined up in a row to take these images. And previous to this, we didn't fully comprehend what that motion looked like because we couldn't. We couldn't see it with our eyes because yes, our eyes are an optical system and the light data that is coming in through our eyes that is also coming in through our cameras is the same. But the way in which that data is viewed, is processed, is recognized, is very different. And that's not even mentioning post-processing, which some people demonize, um, but it's very often misunderstood, especially in night photography. But that is a topic for another episode, okay? Then we have exhibit B which is the way in which we use the camera. So if exhibit A is the actual physical hardware, it's our eyes, it's the camera. Exhibit B is now how we actually are using the camera. If you truly wanted to make a case that you are a photographer documenting, then you wouldn't take into consideration things like framing, composition, light, and more. Instead, you would look for the most descriptive light so everything could be seen. And to really document it would be pretty worthwhile to also have everything be the same. So having a step-by-step -step formula for shooting would be necessary, like always having your tripod set to X height in X direction at X time of day and X conditions and so on. But we don't see many photographers working that way. Oh, wait, maybe the work of, say, Hilla and Bernard Becker, who are notably known for their photographs of industrial structures, including water towers. Except, of course, that their work is actually considered to be more sculptural than photo, since their images illustrated the sculptural properties of architecture. And their work actually explored the idea of Marcel Duchamp's ready-mades, with the industrial buildings that were their subjects being viewed as found objects. And this work in particular, I'll link up to some of it in the show notes here. If you've never looked at it, it is a mainstay in photography history. And people know the Beckers and they know the work that they've done. So even then, it's not just photos. It's not just a document. Every time we pick up our camera, we are making a host of decisions 
And those decisions are largely based on our lived experiences. We are creating imagery to fulfill a need and to communicate an idea. There might be times when we don't think of that. We're just out enjoying nature and capturing it on camera. Whether you think about it or not is not the sole reason for expressing yourself using a camera. In fact, in episode 10, we dive into this idea even more to help you uncover why it is that you find yourself with your camera out at night or in nature. Suffice to say, there is a reason and that reason finds its way into your work. It's up to you if you decide to understand and utilize that or not. And I think at the end of the day, that is where the argument of, am I a photographer or am I an artist comes to a head. You can think of yourself one way or another. I could instead identify as a mechanical parts emotion translator. The end result of my work is not really going to change. What does change is when you let go of, or at the very least, investigate the limiting beliefs and constructs that we have been culturally programmed to believe through society, through capitalism, through your own individual experiences. Like Christine, as a little girl, being told art is no way to make a living. What if you thought of yourself as an artist? Like just actually take a moment, try it on. It's like just putting on another jacket. What if you thought of yourself as an artist? How would it feel? Do you think it devalues what, with you, what you do with your camera? Or maybe does it add value? Does it make you feel like now you have more responsibility to think about what you're creating? What if instead of placing ideas of what being an artist is supposed to look like, this being an artist with photography as your medium, what if you just decided to explore what it means for you and get rid of all of those supposed tos? Because when it's all said and done, you get to decide. Try it on, see how it feels. I've had many, many of my students come in to my courses with no thoughts to art. They just want to learn the technical. And then through learning the technical and realizing there's more depth, they find that in their work. They find the art through the process of doing. I would really love to know, where do you fall on this divine? Are you camp photographer? Are you camp art? Or are you hanging out on the fence and just seeing what it's like on each side? Please let me know what resonated with you most from today's episode. I'd love it if you took a screenshot of the episode and shared it in your stories with your thoughts or sent me a DM. This is a big conversation and we've only just scratched the surface here. It took me over 10 years to get be comfortable again with calling myself an artist. So I don't expect one episode with me to put you over the edge, but I would absolutely love to hear what you think of it. As always, thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode.
Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast episode today. If you're excited about night photography, but you don't know where to start, then listen on. This is for you. Well, hello, it's Christine. I am the host of the After Dark Photography Podcast, and I'm the founder of the Night Photography Academy. And if you don't know me, I have been a professional photographer since 2009 and teaching photography actually since 2008. When I first started teaching photography, it was to students who had excitedly just bought their first ever camera, or maybe who had a digital SLR sitting on a shelf, gathering dust, and they were finally ready to learn how to use it. Now, almost 15 years later, I find the same kind of people coming to me super jazzed about night photography. But frankly, overwhelmed at where in the heck to even start. For one, they haven't mastered using their camera on manual mode, let alone doing things like equivalent exposures, which is really the bedrock of night photography. And if that sounds like you, I have just the thing. I am giving you 100% free access to the first module of my Photography for Beginners Bootcamp. This was a hybrid online in-person class that I taught here in Nova Scotia before the pandemic happened. People would take the class online and then I would run field trips where we would go out and practice together. And I am giving you access to the first module completely for free. Unfortunately, field trips are not at this time available. Imagine that you know exactly what setting is the most important to use on your camera in any given situation based on, you know, what you want to create. What's that vision in your head? And not only that, you know how to do all that, but you also know how to troubleshoot. So maybe if things look too dark or too bright or too blurry or even too sharp, you will know exactly what to do to fix it and get the image you want. After going through this totally bingeable course, you will master manual mode on your camera and be able to confidently create beautiful images with your digital SLR or mirrorless camera. To sign up, go to christinerosephotography.com bootcamp. And that will be in the show notes too, if you just wanna do a quick click and hop on over there. Thanks so much, and I can't wait to see you on the next episode.